It's hard to find sane political conversation these days. So Truth Jihad Radio is the place to go. If you like this kind of radio show, please do subscribe at truthjihad.com. Just click on the subscribe at Substack link. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment in the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome. This is the special live weekend edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Burek, waging the all-out struggle for truth from an undisclosed location in the Wisconsin woods since 2006, bringing you really important ideas that are actually too important to be attended to by the corporate-controlled mainstream. Today, we have some exceptionally good ideas on the show. In the final half hour, Eric Zeus will nominate Colonel Douglas McGregor for president. I think that's a great idea. I wrote in RFK Jr. last time. In the past, I voted for people like Cynthia McKinney. And uh, I I think uh, Douglas McGregor actually might have a chance. So uh, that's possibly an idea whose time has come. And at the beginning of the second hour, international relations professor Michael Brenner will discuss his new article, Why the Unhinged Russophobia and Anti-Putin Hysteria. Well, that's the question these days, isn't it? And he offers a lot of uh, really good analysis on that. Uh, which is, of course, the the big question of the moment. And now, in the very first hour, we're going to do the full hour talking about the American oligarchy. I think that, just that phrase, American oligarchy, is the key to a set of ideas that could help us save the country. Most folks don't recognize that we have an oligarchy. We're told that it's a democracy, and we're supposedly fighting for democracy all over the world, in the Middle East and in Ukraine and wherever else, And it's nonsense. We're fighting for oligarchy, and we're brainwashed to do it by oligarchs. And once we recognize that, maybe we can change it. Well, Marilyn Singleton just published a great article called Real Americans and the American Oligarchy. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Marilyn. How are you? I am just great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I loved your article, and I think you're barking up not just the right tree, but I mean really the right tree, this recognition that we have an oligarchy problem. Uh, How long have you been aware of this? Well, actually for years, but just like with everything else that's happened in this country, COVID really seemed to bring things out and bring them to people's attention. And believe me, I think when Nancy Pelosi opened her refrigerator, her $22,000 refrigerator filled with $14 a pint ice cream and told people, oh, well, this is how you can busy yourself while you're under quarantine. Let them eat ice cream, said Marie Antoinette. (laughs) That's exactly right. I think that started opening people's eyes. And episode after episode after episode, uh, our Governor Gavin Newsom, When we were locked down and masked up, he went off to a $500 a plate restaurant with his lobbying buddies without masks, yucking it up, 
all caught on cell phone video, and it just shows how these elitists completely, really disdain us because he knew he'd be seen, and it's just sticking their finger in our eye. It's like they're gaslighting us. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I think people, other people, other than people like you and me who think about this kind of stuff all the time, are starting to catch on. So, okay, so we have this oligarchy problem, and our media almost entirely reflects the views of the oligarchs. Now, whether they used to be maybe slightly more, quote-unquote, conservative oligarchs, and now we have some input from some pseudo-progressive oligarchs, but it's pretty much all oligarch views all the time in the media. And uh, COVID, as you said, did seem to spark a bit of recognition of this, a bit of rebellion against it, as people noticed this distinction. And uh, so-called populism has been said to be on the rise, and it's a terrible threat to the planet, you know, with people like uh, Trump as the emblem of so-called populism. Uh, Do you think that we're we're heading into a situation where more and more people wake up to this? And, And if so, why is it that after so many people saw through the oligarch's lies about COVID, we have seemingly an awful lot of people buying into their lies about Ukraine and Russia. That's probably because that isn't something you can feel yourself. And what what I'm meaning about that, it's like with COVID, you personally could get sick. You personally had friends who got sick, didn't get sick. And maybe somebody did know someone who got horribly sick. But you could talk amongst yourselves about it, and you don't need a medical degree to know that, gee, I had the symptoms of a common cold, or gee, I had the vaccine and it didn't change, I still got COVID. All these things you could perceive for yourself. I don't think many people know the history of Ukraine, know anything about Zelensky other than he's a charismatic person and he was comedian who very very talented piano player yeah pianist as they call him so two syllables um but these histories run deep and go back years even before the breakup of the soviet union and i'm certainly no expert but i'm fortunate enough to know a couple russian orthodox outside of russia church people so they're very up on all this stuff so we just don't know and look at what has been happening over what the whole trump presidency where it was russia 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 and hate russia hate trump and trump and russia are together so if we hate trump then we can hate russia And uh, so Putin was certainly made into a bad guy. And I don't even know if people know anything about Ukraine and and anything else. So we're trained to think of anything Russian as bad. And this is not to say I think Putin's a great guy. It's just that I think most people don't know any of this history or any of the ins and outs of what's going on in another country any of the big picture, like who wants to be part of the new globalist revolution and part of the Great Reset and who wants to keep their own country's autonomy. These are all issues that, um, you know, I most people 
don't even know about. I think that's a good point, that people were personally impacted by COVID, and so that made them more interested, and they thought more about it and dug more for information. I remember uh, back in the day when I, I, I came up sort of at the tail end of the Vietnam War when I was young and going to high school and college, and I remember learning that anti-war sentiment grew with the number of American dead in Vietnam, and it turned out to be a function of the how many de- degrees of separation between an average person and somebody who died in Vietnam. And so people, you know, their personal experience of these things is extremely important. And so, as you say, if people have virtually no experience of Ukraine and Russia, then they are a lot more sort of dependent on, on the media for their information. And for me, it's it's been kind of a wake-up call because the genuinely alternative media, which I, I like to think of myself as part of, is unanimously, uh, quote-unquote, pro-Russia. That is, every single analyst that I have the slightest bit of respect for, that by analyst I mean somebody with a certain expertise in politics and international affairs, every single one of them it would say that Russia is more the the victim than the aggressor here and that the u.s and nato are the aggressors every single one uh, and and i guess what that means is that the real alternative media with the honest uh, experts has not yet built up enough of an audience to uh, essentially counter the propaganda tidal wave coming out of both the mainstream and the pseudo alternative media and and that uh, I, I would have hoped it would have been better, partly because of COVID. I would have thought that COVID would have plugged more people in to these "quote unquote" red pill, you know, truly alternative sources. Maybe it's we're you know maybe it will. I mean, maybe we're seeing kind of a, a moment of mass hysteria that will be over quickly and uh, people will wise up. I hope they do pretty soon because we could all be uh, dying of radiation poisoning if if it doesn't happen. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you you say that you hope that COVID opened people's eyes and they stayed open. But what we have to remember is what did we have intervening, which had nothing to do with Putin? Were gas prices climbing up out here in California? They're up to $7 a gallon. And inflation where you can't go to the store week after week and that tomato doesn't cost five cents, 10 cents, 20 cents more. Um, People have these, excuse the expression, bread and butter things on their mind. So we go from COVID to you can't afford to buy food or gas and then in creeps Ukraine. You could tell us anything about it. And it's going to go over people's heads in one ear and out the other, like you say, until some Americans die. But people are just trying to put bread on the table right now. So I think that's unfortunately the way you can change people's minds or get people not to pay attention to more important global things is you make things so miserable for them on a day-to-day basis that they don't have time to think about anything else. I think you're absolutely right. Well, you know, getting to your own background, um, it's uh, it's interesting that, you know, somebody with uh, a kind of elite background in a way in terms of your education, uh, Stanford, uh, you know, MD at you know, UCSF work, 
and uh, some residency at Harvard University's Beth Israel Hospital. So you've been through these elite institutions, and you, you're a, a JD, I guess, as well as a, a medical doctor. So a lot of folks would sort of think of you as somebody, at least in the cognitive elite, with a lot to lose, and let, yet you're speaking out on these issues, including COVID, which was an issue where people could really get lynched, uh, you know, especially the, the doctors who have stood up against the, the mass hysteria have really suffered a lot of pushback. So I'm interested in your own story of how you started deciding to speak out and stand your ground. I think part of it was just taught to me by my parents who always said you have to speak your mind. And as my husband's mother would always say, just because you're educated, it doesn't mean you're smart. And that is how I feel about so many people. And there's no question a good education is a wonderful thing. And there's no question that I benefited and enjoyed going to so-called elite schools. But I met, I've met, i met wonderful people, whether it was down in southeast San Diego or in the halls of Harvard, and people are people, and the idea that some group of people, just because they happen to have been born in the right family or achieved the right education, are better than others, has never sat right with me. I wasn't raised that way. My mother said, you treat all people the same, no matter who they are. And I think that that's just so drummed into me that, I almost resent it when someone acts like they're better than somebody else because they aren't. We were all born the same. And going to college X or college Y in the end doesn't mean a darn thing. Well, there's been a kind of uh, an elitism in, in the COVID response and a kind of a class divide you know, there's a whole sociology of how people show which class they belong to and how they're better than the class below them in all these various ways, uh, conspicuous consumption, as Veblen wrote about, and things like that. And, and in the COVID period, it seemed like a certain group of people were showing off their credentials as supposedly educated, you know, upper class type people, as opposed to the riffraff and the Trump voters and things like that, by basically buying into the party line on COVID and despising anybody who questioned it as being below them. Um, That's a kind of an interesting sociological phenomenon, isn't it? I thought it was. And well, and what's doubly amusing about it is some of these same folks were the ones who didn't have the mask on until they went up to the lectern and had to quickly put the mask on (laughs) just to take it off. And we started overhearing people say, well, I better put the mask on before anybody sees me. And it, the hypocrisy is what's so disgusting. And I just wish that more people could see that. But we get back to where we started in the beginning saying, why is the media on board? Depending on what media people listen to, they will never see those film clips. They will never see Pelosi or Newsom or Zuckerberg or any of these people who are basically running the show, they won't see those clips. And 
on purpose, I watch all the news stations. And whenever there's a big story that comes out, I'll record a CNN show, an MSNBC show, excuse me, and uh, an OAN show just to see how that information is presented. And sometimes something isn't even presented at all. It, It reminds me of in the beginning when Black Lives Matter was in all the news and there'd be some crime committed. And if it were committed by a black person, their picture would never be on the news. Yet, if it was a white person, they put their picture up because it was going through that period where a black person could do no wrong. Now, mind you, I'm black. You can't call me a racist. But it was the truth. Now, suddenly that started to wane a little bit. I think, fortunately, Jesse Smollett had a lot to do with it, with his fake hate crime, that, yes, black people can do wrong. White people can do wrong. Hispanic people can do wrong. That we're not talking about race. We're talking about if you're a jerk or you're not a jerk. And But the media shaped that, uh, what they were going to show you, what crime they're going to show you, and who did it, and, and how they say it, and how they reported COVID deaths, and all these things. It's all in how it's reported. And you wouldn't think you were listening to the same story to hear it on OAN versus hearing it on CNN. That's right. And the media seem to, many, much of the media anyway, has kind of leaned to the left, supposedly, especially as a counter to Trump, who's portrayed as the right. And this way, the way people identify with the sort of left uh, party line as a badge of their higher class and educational status seems really strange to me because back when I was growing up uh, in the late 60s and 70s when I started being aware of things, at that time, the basic paradigm was that upper class people would identify as Republicans and conservatives because they wanted to conserve their money from those left liberal progressive types who were mostly sort of proud working class people. And thought, yeah, hey, we working class people are as good as you, you snobs. And so there was a Democrat versus Republican, left versus right kind of divide, uh, in which the upper class status was more on the side of the right. And somehow that's reversed. And now it seems that the so-called left, which is the, really the dominant mainstream perspective, which people identify with in order to enhance their own self-esteem by identifying with the educated upper classes is more about uh, virtue display and signaling and pretending you know, to, to be anti-racist and pro-LGBTQ and pro-Ukraine or whatever the flavor of the month is. Doesn't, most of that doesn't have a whole lot to do with social justice, uh, helping out uh, underprivileged people or you know, building a more just world, stopping war, all this kind of stuff that the left used to stand for. That's all gone. And now it seems like it's an empty display. And this new so-called left perspective seems to be precisely orchestrated to essentially support the interests of the oligarchs. Uh, and so the whole thing is turned upside down in my lifetime. At least it, it seems that way. Uh, had, would, would you agree with that analysis? Oh, I totally agree. And it is a show. And, and it's just 
I, I feel like they're playing Pictionary or some sort of charades, and most of the population is, has fallen into the game. And it's all part of the bigger picture where you're throwing in all this gender theory and critical race theory, climate change, everything. And what do all roads lead to? Big class warfare with the oligarchs on top. And it's, and for years, <clears throat> excuse me, I've always said the this whole idea where the people who want socialism are people who are already rich. And it's kind of like, well, I have my money and that's all I care about. I don't care if you get yours. So we aren't going to allow real capitalism. And they're involved in this crony capitalism, which has completely bastardized what mark open marketplace was supposed to be about and made it so, yeah, we're at the bottom and we can't get to the top because of capitalism and it's like no it's not you can't get to the top because the oligarchs have made sure one way or another you're going to stay at the bottom that's right the oligarchs don't want economic competition and they don't want competition in the marketplace of ideas either do they not at all and i find it interesting when you think about what the country was founded on was this marketplace of ideas and the concept that if you don't like the speech you hear, you fight it with more speech. Now the word of the day is if you don't like the speech, shut the person up. Cancel like them. Crook. Yeah. What's with this cancel stuff? Where did that word cancel come from? Um, I would prefer that it, it never came along. It never entered the dictionary. Well, it, it is kind of funny how it became its whole new thing, cancel culture. And, you know, when it's just good old-fashioned censorship and see no evil, hear no evil, and all all the rest, and, it, and it's kind of a way to hide what it actually is. And the sad part is these legislators we have, they've certainly long since stopped working for the people who voted them in. And there's a couple of legislators who actually put forth, this was last year, um, when they were upset at what was coming out of the so-called conservative news stations. They wrote letters to the cable providers and DirecTV, AT&T, all these folks, and wanted them to punish OAN and Fox News for having people on that might be spreading misinformation. And I thought, oh, my goodness, when you now have the legislators wanting to clamp down on the airwaves, and all I'm thinking, if you don't like what you hear on a station, don't listen to it. It's really quite simple. And then that metastasize to where now it's become a public health problem uh, which is a whole other conversation, too, um, the misinformation, because it's not just COVID misinformation. Suddenly that word, it's just like cancel culture, it's become a new word of the day. Anything you don't like can be called misinformation, which sounds so so Kafka-esque in 1984 in the first place. When did we use that word misinformation? I never used it up until 
what, a couple of years ago, and suddenly everybody's throwing the word around. And, and it's like, what is it anyway? It's what you don't like, then you just call it misinformation. Person you don't like, you call them a racist. It's, it's, it's become um, a new way to just get people out of your life, <laughs> off earth if they possibly could. Yeah, the, the fact checkers are now not only correcting actual facts like, you know, if, if it's true, if somebody says, oh, Wikipedia says that, you know, exactly one million Americans died of COVID and the real number is 1.3 million, then, yeah, that's that's the fact that Wikipedia says that. That doesn't mean it's true, but it just means that there is such a thing as a world of facts and somebody said something or they didn't say something, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact checkers now will actually claim that various things are are wrong and false because they say there's missing context. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that if you think that certain elements of of the context are what's important in interpreting a piece of information and you stress those aspects of the context and then the so-called fact checkers disagree, they think a different set of contextual uh, issues is the uh, are, are important then they have the right to say that you are incorrect and what you said was false because it was missing the context that they wanted to be there i mean to me the, the, the fact you know that they're doing this just shows the total lack of sophistication of whoever it is that they're drafting into this censorship effort uh, I mean, these people should at least take a college introductory course in, in critical thinking and debate and so on and get a sense of what's the difference between, say, facts, opinions, uh, you know, context, things like that. But uh, apparently they're not really hiring, you know, <laughs> very thoughtful people to do this work. But you know what? It doesn't matter because the damage is done, even if it was done uh, in a clumsy way. and you're looking at it realizing, well, they didn't really analyze these facts, and these facts are, in fact, true. Again, the person who's reading it or the person who never got to see that Facebook post because it was taken down before they saw it, they'll just move on to something else. And, you know, people are busy. They're not digging into, well, let me find some other source for this. Uh, Facebook had taken down, I had written a piece this a couple of years back called Mass Facts, and it was quite long, and it was an analysis of multiple studies, including a huge analysis that came out of the CDC. And in fact, on purpose, I used most studies that came out of the CDC that said that cloth masks did not work against influenza. And I gave the sizes of the viruses and whatnot, and obviously it was against influenza because COVID hadn't come out yet. And um, it was up. Somebody posted it on Facebook. It was up. And then somebody else said, oh, they took down my post. And so we contacted Facebook to say, why would you take down the post? And they said, uh, there was a quote about the World Health Organization, what they said about masks, and they changed their mind. And we said, well, we put both quotes in. We didn't leave out the other one. And then they, and then they said, oh, well, besides now, it's greater than the seven days you have to appeal. So it was almost like they came up with another excuse. 
when they were called on their lie. And wow. Yeah, I mean, so when you actually track these people down, but the damage was done. The thing was pulled down. And end of story, and that's all they wanted. And yeah, it's, whether, it's, you know. yeah it's, it's not totally non-transparent. Like, I, I've had... You know, strikes against my YouTube channel. I've gotten up to two strikes, I think, on three different occasions. Uh, somehow, they haven't completely nuked my channel yet. But it, that process of, you know, they claim you violated one of their guidelines against, oh, hate speech or COVID misinformation, or uh, the latest one was one of my radio guests apparently was not a hundred percent convinced that the twenty, the twenty twenty presidential elections were fully uh, kosher. <laughs> and so they have this new rule against so-called uh, presidential election misinformation. So calling into question any American presidential elections or um, there was one other country, I forget which one it was, like Germany or something, I forget. <laughs> so there's like two countries on earth where you have to have absolute faith that every vote has been perfectly counted or uh, you can't, you, you know, you, you can't post it. And so these in these rules, you know, these, this bizarre set of, of rules that is totally apart from any tradition of First Amendment jurisprudence, which is actually pretty good, uh, is, is then enforced in a non-transparent way where they, they say, OK, you violated our policy on, let's say, hate speech. You, OK, you claim that the 60 minute video violated the policy. Well, what what part of it did? You know, who said what that violated your policy? They won't tell you. They don't. So there's no way you can possibly figure out what they're what they have against you. It's very much like Kafka's novel, The Trial. And uh, show me the man, I'll show you his crime. (laughs) There you go. Uh, And so I guess what's really going on here is that they're you know they're gaslighting us. They're doing the Seligman experiment. You know, Seligman did that experiment in Pennsylvania where he taught learned helplessness to poor dogs. He would torture the dogs. And he had a special way of torturing the dogs in such a way that the dogs had absolutely nothing they could do to stop the pain or escape the pain. And once they realized that, they fell onto the floor and became these little quivering blobs of jelly, no more resistance. And so so that's learned helplessness. And I think that's what they're trying to inflict on us. And, and I think they're doing it partly through what's been called terror management theory which is this psychological theory that claims that we all are repressing the fear of our own death. So anything that reminds us of the reality of our own impending death will uh, freak us out, and we will do everything we can to avoid being conscious of that. So, you know, that, that's how they got us with 9-11. They, you know, gave us this fear of death from terrorism. That's how they got us with COVID, fear of death from COVID. And uh, now I think... They're, they've got the, the nuclear weapons pointed at our heads, and it's all very subliminal. Uh, so I, I don't know. Do you, maybe I'm, uh, I'm going a little too far in, in thinking about how psychology is being weaponized by the oligarchs against us. Uh, but you know, if you go back and look at the work of Edward Bernays, that was a whole century ago, and he learned how to manipulate people below the level of consciousness. I think they've gotten better at it since then, and they're really waging a war on our minds, and, and we need to figure out how to fight back. Well, it's it's interesting because there's so many levels. You have the psychological analysis there. Eric Hoffer, who wrote a wonderful book yeah. a long time ago called True Believer, The Making of a Mass Movement. And one of the point, things he points out was um, 
the person who wants to start this mass movement and draw people in says, first you have to make people miserable because they won't follow the new leader unless they're miserable. And what I found fascinating, two words that he used, these will sound familiar to you, were hope and change. He says, those are the best tools of the person who wants to start this mass movement because you can't define hope and change. It's And that this is a problem, and he was saying, when businessmen run for office, one of the reasons that they generally wouldn't win is they would give facts, and people could dispute the facts, or people might not like the facts, but if you say, I'll give you hope and change, who can define what the hope is? Everybody has a different hope, and the person who's spouting all this stuff off doesn't have to define what it is. He just says, I'm going to give you hope and change. And we know somebody who did that. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, that was interesting how that came at, at a perfect moment, because at that moment, 2008, that message of hope and change seemed to mean something because we had just been through eight years of the politics of fear in, in a really extreme way, you know. And so moving to the politics of hope that things could be different and better through change seemed like just that vague slogan sounded kind of different from what we just been through with eight years of you know fear that evil Muslim terrorists are going to fly planes into tall skyscrapers, causing them to blow up and come down at free fall speed through the center of most resistance uh, in completely impossible ways and then chase people through the streets of New York with pyroclastic clouds. And then anthrax is going to be delivered to anybody's mailbox any moment from these evil Muslim terrorists who uh, scrawl on their on their letters, uh, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. Uh, so, you know, we were, it was like a cartoon, and these cartoon villains were after us, and we were terrorized for eight years, and, you know, we opposed going into Iraq, and they didn't care, and so we we, we just felt discouraged, and, and people were, were really getting down on, on Bush and Cheney, and, and the 9-11 Truth Movement, which I was a part of, had gotten really big at that point, and so then along comes Obama with his, his hope and change, and it sounded different, and I knew it was BS, I actually wrote a book uh, before even, you know, a month before he was elected, I finished the book uh, called uh, Questioning the War on Terror, a Primer for Obama Voters, and and said that, hey, if you really want any serious change, and you're going to have to rise up and do it yourself because <laughs> voting for this guy isn't going to do it. And I think I was right, but the book uh, unfortunately didn't sell the 150 million copies it would have needed to sell to actually make much of a difference. Uh, but, yeah, you're, you're right, that, that hope and change thing. Uh, as Eric Hoffer uh, suggested, really did a number on us, didn't it? It truly did. And again, but you have to be aware when you're being manipulated. And uh, I always say the silver lining of COVID is perhaps it woke us up to a lot of manipulations. It woke parents up, and I really think that's what got people going. It woke parents up to what was going on with their children at school. Some parents were astounded when they saw what was in the curriculum and saw how little some of the teachers were doing. And it woke the general populace up to the idea where on March 5th, a random day, 
you had to wear a mask. But on March 6th, a random day, you didn't. It wasn't like magically some statistics had come out on the night between the day you could not or the day you could. No, somebody picked a day out of a hat because there was going to be a press conference about something else unpleasant. So guess what? We'll unmask people that day, and they'll be so happy about that that they won't care about whatever unpleasantry is happening at the press conference. Well, yeah, now we're we're not supposed to worry so much about COVID anymore. We all have to hate Putin. And it's, it, it seems that that change happened almost overnight. And it does remind me of the way things like this have happened before, like with Obama coming in and you know everybody's waking up to you know Bush and Cheney's complicity in 9/11 and you know in you know the, the neocons in that uh, administration having orchestrated 9/11 as a new Pearl Harbor uh and even the people who hadn't figured that part out had figured out that the wars were a total disaster there was this orwellian dimension to the patriot act so people were waking up mostly in the democratic party left side of things and so suddenly boom obama comes along and changes the conversation and puts people back to sleep. And then after eight years of Obama, a different demographic is waking up to the Obama administration's corruption. And along comes Trump, who seems like the anti-Obama, just like Obama seemed like the anti-Bush, and puts all of, uh, you know, all of those other people to sleep, changes the conversation. And it, it kind of seems like when enough people start waking up to the scam that's being perpetrated on them at the moment, then suddenly a new scam grabs all the attention and forces the old issues out of the headlines. And that's what happened now with, with Russia, Ukraine forcing COVID out of the headlines. And suddenly the, the trucker convoy is no longer relevant and nobody cares about it because all we care about is Ukraine. That's very convenient for them, isn't it? The oligarchs, I mean. Absolutely. And you laid it out so well, and I think when people start to think about it, that there's a point where things aren't coincidence anymore. When it happens once, you say, well, it just kind of happened that way. But not over and over how our attention has to be deflected somewhere else because you're starting to learn the truth. So, okay, well, we can't let them continue to go down that path. We can't let any more news stories out about that because they might find out, find out the truth. And um, But people are, in fact, catching on. Thank goodness for the Internet because if it weren't, I imagine just thinking if you were listening to the main radio or TV news stations or radio stations, You'd have no idea some of the other things that are going on in the country. You just would have no idea. And I think one of the other reasons for really going on and on about the Russia thing, and not to say it's sad for anyone who's dying in conflicts. There's no question. No one wants anyone to die or their homes to be bombed or any of this sort of thing. But there was a new Supreme Court nominee who we know a great big goose egg about and why, because it's not in the news. When uh, Brett Kavanaugh was being 
nominated for the Supreme Court. That's all we heard about, day in and day out. And he had the yuppie name, and he's this and he's that. And, and uh, oh, he's elite. And I'm thinking, gee, the new Supreme Court nominee is just as elite. Harvard, married to a Boston rich guy whose family dates back to the Revolutionary War. Nobody's heard about that. So this is just another elitist. And uh, it's not somebody from another law school from the Midwest who's not yet another elitist. And I just feel like, you know, okay, so it's a black person. But it's just another elitist. So we're getting the wool pulled over our eyes in that regard. So that'll never be in the news. That's right. And, you know, you mentioned the Internet is helping us uh, wise up to these things. And, yeah, that's true. But it's I think it is a double-edged sword, and the oligarchs are scrambling to figure out how to get a handle on it, with modest success at least. In the pre-Internet era, I don't know how old you are, but I'm old enough to actually remember the pre-Internet era and how we did our Samizdat, you know, our unofficial information back then. And it was a whole different world. In, in those days, it was possible to have a big publishing house publish a book like Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment in whatever it was, 66, 65, uh, blowing the lid off the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the big mainstream media did get whipped into line on that issue, but somebody made a lot of money selling millions of copies of Mark Lane's book. And then there was an underground press that the hippie movement, the anti-war movement sort of uh, fostered. And so people read these outside the mainstream sources in uh, they, they published more stuff like that in the publishing industry than they do now. So there were books uh, and there was the underground press and there was the semi alternative press. There were libertarian magazines and ramparts and things like that. And so we would talk about that stuff in the faculty lounge and, you know, in the coffee shops. And so there was a place for unofficial information to be exchanged to the point that even before Oliver Stone's film uh, in the early 90s, which pushed the needle on the JFK assassination to the point that more than uh, two thirds, almost three quarters of Americans knew that it was a CIA coup d'etat. Uh, but even before that, my unofficial polls of faculty members and graduate students were that virtually everybody knew this, <laughs> even though most of the media kept saying the opposite. And so even before the Internet, you could spread that kind of information. Then the Internet really got big just in time for 9-11. So we could put up videos of Larry Silverstein, who purchased the World Trade Center in you know like a month before 9-11, doubled the insurance um, on those white elephant buildings that the city had ordered demolished because they were full of asbestos. So he, uh, he doubled the insurance and, uh, uh, he ended up confessing that he demolished building seven. You know, so you could, we could show all this stuff with videos on the internet. It was just there in time. And so it worked really well for a while. But I think the oligarchs were panicked by this. And Cass Sunstein wrote his book expressing his panic, uh, called Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. And he said, you know, we're going to have to outlaw conspiracy theories someday, but in the meantime, we can't do it yet. Uh, so in the meantime, we're going to have to infiltrate, cognitively infiltrate conspiracy groups and disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories. And so he had this whole approach for pushing back. And uh, But what they've ended up doing is they figured out uh, how to get around the free Internet. You know, up until maybe seven years ago, it was completely unthinkable that – 
anybody would be tweaking the dials at like YouTube or Google or wherever to favor any particular article or viewpoint over any other particular article or viewpoint. That would have been seen as a violation of uh, the uh, the Communications Decency Act, uh, which said that if you're a platform, you have to treat everybody equally. So nobody violated that. Everybody, so if, if I put up my 9-11 truth video, it gets exactly the same treatment from the algorithms as somebody who puts up the uh, official story from ABC News. And so we had loose change in other 9-11 truth videos going into 100 million views almost overnight. And this terrified the oligarchs. And so since about 2015, 2016, they've really been cracking down on uh, dissident views on the Internet by shadow banning people and deplatforming people more and more. And COVID was just perfect for this. You know, Trump first terrorized the liberals into letting us, letting them do it. And then uh, COVID terrorized them even more. And so now everybody just accepts that the internet is basically massively censored. Uh, I don't know how, are you old enough to remember the, you know, when, when the internet was, was free and are you as outraged as I am about the way that it's turned unfree? A hundred percent, and yes, I'm old enough, if you make me have to say, and <laughs> Rush to Judgment, and I still have my copy. That hey. was the first book that I went out and bought for myself. Wow. And so even, even, even <laughs> way back then, I had my doubts about various official stories. Right. So, so even before the internet, it was possible to, to get around the propaganda. Uh, but boy, they seem to really be orchestrating things on the internet. Like we've got these Twitter mobs now that parrot the oligarch line and, and lynch or, or deplatform or cancel anybody who gets in the way of the oligarch line. Uh, oh, absolutely. And it, and it goes on everywhere now, what, whatever platform it might be. I think People are hip to that now, and certainly people are trying to start these alternative um, websites, you know, Rumble and whatnot, where things can go on if YouTube takes it down. But the problem is, is the reach. YouTube has a reach to everybody. If you go to an alternative platform, it generally will only have the reach of the people who already know about it and people who already are like-minded toward that platform. And unless you can get others to listen, you get caught into this preaching to the choir thing that's happening now where you're just batting back and forth between and among people who already think the same way. It used to be that you you really could, and, and not in a conscious way, reach out to other people. They would hear something and think, oh, well, let me look into that. And now people only hear what they want to hear. And, and that's on purpose, that it puts people into their own little silos, and pretty soon we'll never be able to get out because they've made people fearful of being called a racist, being called other names, that they're immoral. Look at how they told people it was their moral duty to go out and get a vaccine. Since when has it been your moral duty to take a medicine that you don't want? Next, it'll be your moral duty to have to take some antipsychotic. I feel like we're going back to 
the 20s with forced sterilizations and things that right now people are appalled by because they don't know about it, but in the United States, and it was legal, according to the Supreme Court, that you could forcibly sterilize somebody. All the way up until 1981, they were doing forced sterilizations. So oh. people think that sounds off the wall. That's why they don't want us to know real history, because when you read the history and see We've done ugly things in America, so it doesn't mean we can't do ugly things again. Well, I, I published a, a parody uh, op-ed calling for mandatory vaccinations against conspiracy theories. And, and some people said, you know, don't give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're right. They're right, because that'll be next. It, and it sounds – I wrote an article – Oh, this was some years ago called Government Can Be Harmful to Your Health. And it and these are all things that are verified excuse me from congressional hearings. Again, I try not to get materials from excuse the expression, alternative media and try to get it from the horse's mouth that you dig deep enough and you find these things that they're never going to advertise that there was an operation that was done in the 50s and 60s, and this was done by the Navy, where they dropped an infectious bacterium over eight major cities in the United States to see what it would do. And uh, what it did was infect some people, not most people, because you had to be kind of immunocompromised to be infected, but it did. And this went unnoticed till a family who had some means uh, actually sued because their father got pneumonia from this, and the doctor said it was very unusual and couldn't figure out where it came from. Anyway, they tracked it down. Big congressional hearings in the 90s where it came out, and it was true. Yes, they did do that. And people think, how would our government do that to its own citizens? And it's like, yeah. And um, a lot of people don't know about the Tuskegee experiment where they let black people have syphilis. They already had it, and they didn't treat them because they wanted to know what the natural history of the disease was. Even in 1947 when penicillin came out, they didn't give them penicillin, even though because they wanted the study, they wanted to find out the end. That study didn't end until the 1970s. And again, congressional hearings, and they said, oh, this was horrible, and this is a stain on America. A lot of people don't know about it, but why we need to know about these things is not to be sensationalistic, but not to be naive when people say, oh, they would never do that. And it's like, well, it's been done in the past. Why can't it be done now? You know, purely a rhetorical question. Right. And, and so when we get denials uh, from the government and the fact checkers and so on that there are any U.S.-supported biological weapons labs in Ukraine, and then Victoria Newland admits that there are and that we're desperately trying to clean them up before the Russians get there and, and capture them, uh, it's, uh, and then they say, well, they're not actually biological weapons labs. They're just research labs. Yeah, they're making biological weapons, but it's just research to imagine what would happen if the bad guys drop anthrax on us. That's why we're making anthrax. 
you know, uh, it's, do people actually believe this stuff? And, 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 and that leads me to the larger question. We only have a few minutes, but I'm wondering, you know, since you're uh, a medical doctor with some expertise in this and you became a, an expert on certain aspects of COVID, what do you think about the argument that COVID is a bioweapon? And I, I don't know if you, if you encountered the evidence that it probably emerged from a U.S. biological attack on China and Iran. I have heard that. I don't know enough to answer that. The Most of the evidence, certainly, that I can honestly say it didn't come from a pangolin and that it came out of a lab. I can't tell you which one. And uh, so I, I won't commit to that theory, but I can uh, kind of conclude my thought by saying, as my friend Ginger Bregan says, yesterday's conspiracy theory are today's facts. So would you uh, agree with the Russians and the Chinese who say that we need to put some teeth in the biological weapons convention and have inspections and uh, get a handle on what's going on in these bioweapons labs? I think we should. I, You know, people realize now the danger. And, yeah, a lot of people did die from COVID. A lot of people didn't die from COVID. But just like a lot of people didn't die when they dropped the ratio over all these American cities, but we're not above, morally above doing this sort of thing. So I think we should all be scrutinized. And I think the only way you can honestly say you want to scrutinize Russia or Iran is we have to be scrutinized too. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Biological Weapons Convention should uh, apply to everybody equally. And there is some evidence that the U.S. isn't the only bioweapons bad guy. I mean, it was actually Nixon who pushed through the bioweapons convention. And according to the book Plague Wars by Mangold and Goldberg, the Russians were cheating quite massively after that <laughs> was signed. Uh, in fact, it, had there been a nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union after what the 70s, uh, most Americans would have died actually from bioweapons in packed into ICBMs, not from nuclear weapons. They actually had more power to kill people with their bioweapons, and they were all packed and loaded, <laughs> locked and loaded and ready to shoot at us. Uh, and that was in total violation of the Bioweapons Convention, again, according to that uh, Mangold and Goldberg book. So this is something that applies to everybody. And I, I would think that that would be the lesson of COVID, is that we need, to, because uh, you, know, you don't need that much imagination to notice that if the so-called progress in that field continues much longer uh, and, and those race-specific biological weapons that the neocons were dreaming about in their Project for New American Century manifesto, Rebuilding America's Defenses, where they said that bioweapons, uh, race-specific bioweapons are going to become a politically useful tool, you know, if, if we just go down that road, um, obviously terrible things are going to happen. I mean, am I crazy for thinking that this is just the elephant in the living room? I don't think you're crazy. And, again, we have to look at history. We have to look at things that have been done in the past. And we don't seem to learn our lessons and say, oh, yeah, that was terrible. We did that in the past. We were caught. We had to go to a hearing. So we better not do that in the future. We don't see that. These folks have no remorse. And they believe that all of us are stupid enough to not have seen 
what they have been doing and what they are doing and likely what they plan to do. Well, here at Truth Jihad Radio and American Freedom Radio, the premier free speech network, we do see what they're doing. Thank you, Marilyn Singleton. Uh, really great conversation. I, I love your work, and in particular, this essay on the American oligarchy, which I think everybody really needs to read. Well, thank you. I can't believe an hour's done already. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. We'll hope to have you back sometime. Okay. All right, take care. It's Marilyn Singleton, Kevin Barrett here at TruthJihad.com. Back in the next hour, Michael Brenner and Eric Zeus.